So if you recall last week, verses 1 through 4, which is the Lord's Prayer, which is it's traditionally called the Lord's Prayer, we studied that last week. Verse by verse, we broke it down. The model of prayer that Jesus is teaching there. He's not teaching us a script. He's not teaching us something that we verbatim repeat to ourselves or mindlessly repeat in a church service. But he had, he had given us a model of prayer in the Lord's Prayer. So we looked at that last week. You could view that as um, giving us context to what to pray when we go to prayer with the Lord. It gives, it gives a formation to what we should pray to the Lord. Not verbatim, but all those different aspects of that prayer should influence and, and be an outline for our own heartfelt prayers unto the Lord and our private devotion to Him. But Jesus continues on with, with the issue of prayer and teaching prayer in verses 5 through 13. And while in the verses 1 through 4, when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, he's teaching them what to pray, that gives formation to, the, to, to the, what we pray, in the next verses, he's telling us how to pray, how to pray. So the, the title for tonight is The Spirit of Prayer. What is the driver? What is the motivation? What is the spirit of prayer? When we approach the throne of God, what should be um, the driving motivator and the spirit around it? And what brings us and how to the throne of God and how we approach him? So the spirit of prayer here tonight. So let's, let's read this, verse 5 of chapter 11. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs." Now, the key word in all of this, one of the key words in all of this is that word persistence. I'm reading out of the New King James. The King James says importunity. Now, when was the last time you used the word importunity? And actually, we don't use it very often, but the translation importunity gives better shape to the real uh, meaning of that word there in the original Greek. And, and, and I, will, I will give you even more context to what he's teaching here because really, our understanding of the scripture, it all hinges on that word right there. It, it, it affects the spirit of prayer and the nature of what Jesus is preaching. So I'm going to come back to this. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Verse 10. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and to understand what is the nature of prayer, how we should approach you. We should understand, God, the nature of the one to whom we are bringing our petitions and our supplications and our needs to help us to understand who you are as our Father in heaven here tonight, God. Give us a desire, a hunger for prayer, for your presence 
to come to you with our needs and in humility, God, rely completely upon you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was about 2016, maybe 2015, and I got a call at about midnight while still in bed with my wife. I was awakened by the ringing of my phone, and on the other end of this phone was a woman's voice. And this woman's voice was the same voice of this woman sitting on the third row over here, and her name is Kristen Biddle. I was awakened by this phone call and uh, this shrill voice on the other end saying, can you please come to my house? Please come to my house right now and bring a gun. This was a time when they did not live across the street from us on Windsor Circle. They lived further down Walton, still a mile from my house on Robin Hood, their first house they had bought. And so I grabbed the only gun I had, or actually I have a little Ruger 38, uh, uh, 380. It's real small. It's like a, a concealed carry gun. And then I have a 38 Special, which is it's a revolver, a Ruger a revolver, but it has a pink handle, and it's, it's Kimmy's. So I grab that. I got a pink-handled gun. I grab a little flashlight that I have, and I run over there. And, and she thought she had heard men's voices outside of the window. And this is around midnight. And the girls had recently come over there. There were issues with the, with, you know, the parents and making sure, you know, the girls are safe, and so they have that on their mind. She called her dad. Her dad couldn't come. So I showed up in the middle of the night, got out of bed with my pink gun, and I walked the perimeter of that house because Hunter was at work. Should have added that. Hunter didn't stay in bed at home. He was at work. <laughs> and, if, and if he would have pulled out a gun, it wouldn't have been pink. It would have been a lot more manlier. So I walked the perimeter, and to be honest, I'm a little scared myself. I'm a little scared. How many of you, I don't even care if you're a grown man, if you're walking from your truck to the front door, you kind of pick up your step when it's in the middle of the night. Just as an aside, I went to my office very, very early on Sunday morning. I, it was still dark when I went to my office Sunday. And where I, where I work, the office, my office building, it's up on stilts, and you park under it. It's a very unique building, very unique building, right there on Longfellow, near Gladys and Longfellow. And there's this old elevator, because the only way to get up to the, to the offices is through, through stairs, but they have a little elevator there, and it's, it just doesn't look very safe. There's an elevator there. Well, I get out of my truck, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with y'all. I'm like, I need to get inside right now, lock that door, because I don't know who's walking around here, and you know, you know what I'm saying. And so I'm walking towards the stairs. There's the elevator, and I hear a boom. And I hear something coming down the elevator. And I thought, the elevator's coming down and somebody is in it. And my heart started racing so fast. I, don't, I cannot tell y'all how fast it was racing. I went, hello? <laughs> and I walk a little closer and boom! A bird hits the front glass of the elevator. There's a bird in there. I'm like, oh! And I still scurry up there as fast as I can, lock the door behind me. It's like a scary movie, you know. <laughs> so I show up with this pink gun in the middle of the night. I walk the perimeter. I'm looking in the woods. I mean, I'm ready, man. I look like a police officer out there. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all ready like this, man, all tactical. And uh, I look around the windows to see if there's any footprints, 
all that kind of stuff. And I was like, it's all good here. I, you, it's all good. It's all good. I, just, I cleared the area. You're safe. You're good. The point being, at the beck and call of Kristen and the urgency of the matter, the need there, where I didn't really feel like getting out of bed, the need necessitated that I do because she's my friend. He's my friend. I care about his family, their family, those girls, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be there. And in trying to illustrate the nature of prayer, Jesus institutes a parable or an illustration, and Jesus is masterful at this, isn't he? Continuously, he uses parables and illustrations because I'm dumb, and it helps me a lot if you give me a story to relate with a, a spiritual principle that you're trying to teach. And so he, he does a wonderful job throughout the Gospels of using parables to, and using natu- things in the natural to relate to spiritual principles in the heavenlies, and he does it here. He does it here. And, and so when you look here, he starts to say, now after I've told you the model of prayer, what, what, what should help you to for, form your prayers and the content of what you pray, here is the nature of prayer. Here's the spirit of of prayer. Here's what should motivate you, and here's how you should approach the throne of God. And he uses this illustration. Which of you shall have a friend? And, and what Jesus is saying, imagine this. You just think about this. Think about this. Imagine you are at your house, and you're expecting a guest, but you don't know when that guest is going to be there. Or you're not expecting a guest, and you hear a knock on the door. And it's the middle of the night, and it's a, a person who maybe is a, a relative or a friend who's journeyed to your village, to your house, and they need a place to stay, and they've been traveling all night. They knock on your door, and you know what? You realize, I don't have any bread to give to this person. I have no food to give to this person. And especially in this culture and time, hospitality is a huge thing, a very big deal. And so this friend who has received this, this traveling friend He's like, oh, no, I don't have any bread. I don't have any food to give to this individual. I'm going to go across the street and knock on my neighbor's door. You ever gone across the street and ask for an egg or some sugar from your neighbor? (laughs) And he goes to this friend's house, and he knocks on the friend's door. And just like I was dead asleep and I get that phone call from Kristen, so was this man. He's dead asleep. But understanding historically and culturally in the day and time that he's writing this, these houses that these people are living in, it's one big room. And it's even one big bed or mat that the whole family is sleeping on. So if one person gets up, everybody wakes up. And if the father gets up and unlatches the door, everybody's waking up. You light a candle, everybody's going to see and be exposed to the light. Not only are you asleep, but also it's kind of an inconvenience. I'm going to wake up my children. And nobody wants to wake up their sleeping children. And he says, this neighbor's going to respond, no, don't trouble me. Me and my kids, we're, we're sleeping, we're in bed. Please don't trouble me. But if you look here in verse 8, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, so they are friends, they're neighbors and they're friends, yet he will give to him because of his persistence He will rise and give him as many as he needs. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word for this 
in this original word that is translated to persistence. But it's the only, only usage of this Greek word in this verse in the entire New Testament. There's no, other, there's no other place in the New Testament where this particular Greek word is used. And when you read multiple translations, you see multiple translations into the English. Because there's not controversy, but there, there is debate as to what is the real meaning of this, the original meaning of this Greek word. And, and, and uh, King James says importunity, which I think is better than persistence. And I think the NIV is even better because it says bold. So if, if you think of it as persistency, but then you think of it as boldness, it gives a different color and view as to what is the motivating factor for this person. And in my reading, and reading different commentaries and reading different scholars, a very good translation of this word is not just persistence, it's not importunity, it's not just boldness. It would be this, okay? Here is a very good translation of this word. Shameless boldness. Because importunity has the idea of shamelessness. And that's why I say that's, that's, a, that's a good word to use. But it's, it's this combination of boldness and shamelessness. So it would be shameless boldness. Shameless boldness. It's, it's more than a tenacity or a persistence or an endurance. It has the idea of a shameless boldness. Because think about this. It takes a lot of boldness to go knock on your friend's door who's sleeping with their kids and keep knocking until they open. And there is no shame because you know what? I have a guest at my house and they are going to get fed. And I don't care what it takes for me to give them bread. I am shamelessly, boldly going to knock and then you're going to give to me. I'm going to shamelessly or shameless, have a shameless boldness in my approach to this individual. And so this is what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching, this is how you ask. Okay, and, and this is going to be the next theme, ask. Ask, seek, knock. And, and, and this is how you ask. When you approach your father who is perfect and you being evil, when you approach God, you do it with the same shameless boldness as this neighbor who in the middle of the night goes and tries to find bread and food for their guest. And if you turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me, turn, turn there very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I want to further iterate this with the position that we have in Christ Jesus. Okay? Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There is so much richness there that we could go on for days in what is being taught there. But I think this right here gives even more context to what Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 11. Because listen, listen very closely. I'm going to make a confession to you. And maybe you can relate. 
if you view this as a persistency where i got to pray, 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 pray so that maybe God will hear me enough and I'm persistent enough and I work hard enough in prayer, he might answer me. If I work really hard in the prayer closet, okay? If you, if you view it, which Jesus is not trying to teach. He's not trying to teach persistency. Although, although, we should be persistent, okay? Okay. But sometimes, from this perspective of persistency, there are some people who are motivated to prayer because they are fearful of the consequences of not praying. Can you agree with that? Can you relate with that? Because I certainly can. I go to prayer because what's going to happen if I don't pray? And I'm fearful of the consequences if I don't pray because I know i got to pray. And i gotta, I got to get to it. i got to do this. Okay? Rather than being motivated to pray simply because I have a heavenly Father in heaven who first has made an initiation to have communion with me. And so why would I not want to commune with one who loves me and desires fellowship with me? Do you see the difference in motivation there? And, and i got to be honest with you. There are days, if I feel like I didn't pray enough the previous day, it's like I don't feel worthy enough to approach God the next day. Can you relate? It's like, okay, I got okay, I only prayed 15, 20, 30 minutes yesterday. Okay, I got I gotta pray an hour and a half today. Then God will hear me. Then I'm worthy enough. I've shown, I've shown my steadfastness, my faithfulness to prayer. Now he's gonna hear me. Now he's gonna hear me. And we view we view it like we're in a boat. And we're on one side of the river, and our answer to prayer is on the other side of the river. I have to get in the boat, and my praying is me rowing as hard as I can. Rowing, 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 rowing. And I'll get there eventually. And when God, God will reward me because I rowed so hard. Okay? I hope you can relate with this, because this is me. But here's the difference. What Jesus is teaching here is not you convincing God of anything. Because if that is your mindset, you will approach it as, I'm going to pray long enough, be loud enough, be persistent enough, where God will hear me and then I might convince him to answer my prayers. And whether if we know it or not, that, a, that kind of thing, and depending as well on how we were raised and the influences around us, I think that affects more people than you think. I think it really does. And, and, and what Jesus is teaching here broadly is your shameless boldness, which motivates you to come into the presence of God, it's not that you're in the boat rowing. That's not your work. It's that you're in Christ trusting him. The work is not putting in the time into prayer. The work is I'm going to trust you, God and not my flesh and my feelings. That's where the work is, or the crucifixion of the flesh. That I'm going to run into fellowship with God and not run into fellowship so that I can garner his attention and convince him to answer my prayers. But me going to him with a shameless boldness 
It is a declaration on my part that, God, I need you. I love you, and I'm going to place all my faith and confidence in you and your ability to meet this need that's popped up. And so we have needs that come into our lives all the time, don't they? And that's what this person showing up in the middle of the night represents, a need. Oftentimes, an unforeseen need. You get a phone call, an emergency. You find out, I'm going to be laid off next week. That's happened to me. I've been called into my boss's office, man, you don't have a job anymore. And I didn't have one for seven months. It happens to you just like that. What are you going to do? What are you going to do in that moment? You're going to trust in your own strength, your own cunningness. You're going to trust in your own uh, smarts and intellect and your money. You're gonna, what are you going to trust in? What are you going to run to? And so these needs come up into our lives. And it is the Father's good pleasure. He desires so much not for you to put in the hours of prayer and like he's looking at the, the watch on his wrist and he's saying, okay, all right, all right, good job, Stephen. One hour, okay, let's answer this prayer, this prayer, this prayer. As crazy as that sounds, that's how we view it sometimes. And you know what, you know what that fuels? It, gives you, it, it feeds a lot of guilt into your life. And I'm, 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 I'm unworthy, and then I'm fearful to approach him because I'm unworthy. Oh. The fact of the matter is, you are unworthy. And you can only approach the presence of God with a boldness and an assurance and a confidence on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. So now I have boldness to enter the Holy of Holies. Listen to this. This Holy of holies. Only one man, one time per year, could enter the inner holy of holies on the day of atonement. And there was all these rituals and things he had to do himself to cleanse himself. And he would wear a bell around his his ankle and a rope tied to his ankle because if he went into the holy of holies and God found him wanting, he would be dropped dead. And nobody could go in there and grab him. They'd have to pull the rope so they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the manifest presence of God dwelt between the seraphim there and the mercy seat. So you, you didn't saunter in there, did you? You didn't saunter in there, throw back the curtain and just walk up to the Ark like it was no big deal. It was the Holy of Holies. And you were to revere and hallow God's name and make atonement for yourself and all of the people. Oh, but now through the cross, through his death, Jesus has once and for all as our high priest, as our Lamb of God was crucified for us and his blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat and he said, it is finished. And God said, I will accept it. And now on the basis of simply faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I can approach not with an arrogance but with a boldness. I now can enter that holy of holies with a confidence and an assurance that I will not be rejected I will not be humiliated. I will not be cast away because I'm coming with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not my own. None of us can stand in the presence of God in your own supposed righteousness. He'll strike you dead. There's no way. But if I'm been imputed the righteousness of Jesus and, and, and my unrighteousness was imputed upon him upon that cross, 
There's propitiation for my sin. There's an atonement made for my sin. And now I can approach the throne of God, not with fear because I'm unworthy, but with a confidence and a boldness in what the blood of Jesus has accomplished for me. And you know what motivated God? It's because for so God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God so what? Loved. And because he loved, he gave. He gave his son. He gave his life. His motivation in reconciling you back to himself was he loves his creation. That is the basis of your relationship. And what, what separates Yahweh, the God who was revealed in Scripture, the name of God for the Hebrews, Yahweh, what separated him from every other pagan god and still separates him today is that he is the only God who has initiated fellowship with us and not the other way around. Every other God is a man-made God. And it's us constantly, and it's, it's, it's man-made religion where man is always trying to garner enough righteousness to appease for their sin to this God they've created for themselves. But God has initiated the, the way by which we can be in fellowship with him. Israel didn't choose him, he chose Israel. They were naked in their blood, he says, I think, in Ezekiel. On the roadside, nobody cared about them, they were nobody. But God, because he loved them, he went and he took them in their blood. And he gave them a home and he gave them a name. He made them his own special people. And now we are his own special people through the covenant made through Jesus' blood. And so, what he's teaching here is a shameless boldness. And all this comes back to what he ends with, it all comes back to and is predicated upon what is the nature of the Father. The way that you pray and the way that you approach the throne of God is all predicated upon what is the nature of God. And that's why he ends this teaching on who God the Father is. And we'll, we'll end with that here in a moment. But I want to look here at ask, seek, and knock. And so here, verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. You look here at ask, seek, knock. And if you made it acrostic, what is ask, seek, knock? A-S-K. That also spells ask, right? It's pretty neat. You see that? And so, to ask. Generally, this ask, seek, knock, it is what Jesus is speaking is, just ask. I want you to ask. I want you to have a shameless boldness. Just ask me. That's, that, that's what he's saying. Shamelessly, boldly ask. Because of who the Father is. But when we look at these specific words, what does it mean to ask? What is the difference between seek and knock? To ask, this implies a consciousness of need, and it requires humility to go to God and not to yourself. 
So to ask means you have to not look to yourself, but look to something outside of yourself that requires humility. So to ask is an expression of humility. Prayer is an expression of humility before God. Because you're not going to yourself. You're not going to any other man. You are recognizing your need, like this person showing up in the middle of the night. I have a need, and I cannot, cannot meet this need myself. So I have to humble myself and go ask somebody else. So I need to run to God, humble myself, and say, God, I don't have all the answers. I'm not able to fix myself. I'm not able to fix my husband or my wife or my kids. I'm not able to fix this situation in my finances. I can't do it. And that takes an immense amount of humility just to ask. Just to make, take the initiative to ask. Seek. This, this has to do with, when we approach God in prayer, it has to do with the idea of worship. You're not coming to him in, in communion just to ask, hey, give me this, give me that. But it's, it's fellowship, it's communion with God, it's worship. When you go to, go to prayer, don't, don't just see prayer as a means to your end, your hopeful end, or as a means to your, having your prayers answered. Look at it as a means to worship God, to fellowship with God, to commune with God who has first loved you, now you can love Him. So in, in seeking Him... It's worshiping him. It's acknowledging his worthiness, his goodness, his holiness. And it's allowing him to be high and lifted up in light of your circumstance. So you're seeing the glory and greatness and brightness of Jesus, which makes your need dim and little. When you decide to worship him and seek him for who he is. You adore him, you worship him, you lift him up, even in light of your need, because God loves to be worshipped, because we were created to do so. And to knock. Knocking, it, it means that there's a closed door in front of you, you're knocking on this door. It, it, it means that you are praying even when you don't see the answer, or it seems that God is not answering yet. It means you approach prayer by faith. You're saved by faith. You live by faith, you pray by faith, you worship in faith. And the wonderful thing is, prayer is an expression of your faith. Prayer is an expression of your faith. It's you stepping out and saying, God, I'm going to trust you because he who promised is faithful. It's an expression of your faith. But faith always begets faith. And I don't mean as its own self, but what I mean is when you step out in faith and trust him, you realize he's worthy of greater trust. And it creates more faith in your life. It's, it compounds on itself. When I make him the object of my faith and my trust, and I choose to trust him in this situation, I find that he who promised is faithful and he's trustworthy. And it increases my faith. And then I walk in greater faith. And it's, it's just compounding like a snowball. Day after day, year after year, through entire lifetime to the point that I can endure to the end because of my, my faith in him because he has been found faithful towards me. And so I keep knocking, even when I don't see what's ahead of me, even if I don't see the answer, even if he doesn't answer how I hoped he would. I keep knocking. I boldless, boldly and shamelessly knock. 
because of the nature of the one to whom I am praying to. Now, before I end here in verses 11 through 13, I, I do want to give us a proper understanding that just because you pray and ask does not mean God will automatically answer. We have to approach prayer in light of all of what Scripture teaches us, okay? So in, in the Full Life Study Bible, I love what the notes say on this very thing. And if you have, some of you have that Bible, you can see that uh, it's in Matthew chapter uh, 7 that it, it correlates this to the common uh, scripture that's here in, in Luke 11. But it says, Christ's assurance that those who ask will receive what they ask for is based on, number one, there's five quick points here, seeking first the kingdom of God. So you're not seeking your kingdom, you're seeking God's kingdom. Okay, he'll hear you. Number two, recognizing God's fatherly goodness and love, understanding who you're coming to and what his nature is. Uh, number three, praying according to God's will. Number four, maintaining fellowship with Christ, as we see in abiding in Christ in John chapter 15, and then obeying Christ. That is walking in obedience and not being a rebellious child whom he, he can't give those good things to. Here, here, let me wind it down to this in James chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. How many people, even Christians, they have a need. They know they don't have an answer to it. They don't know how it's going to be resolved. And yet they still don't ask. They don't go to God in prayer and submit it to him. It's not that big of a deal. It's not as big as it, it, it may be to where I need to go to God in prayer. Or it's so big that I think, how in the world can God turn this around? How in the world can, can God answer this prayer? But he's saying, you do not have first because you just don't simply ask. You don't ask. You won't humble yourself enough just to say, God, I don't have the answers of myself. I'm going to go to you. But then you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss. Amiss. That is with wrong motives. That you may spend it on your own pleasures. It matters that you ask. And then it matters that you ask with the right Motives, as I just described here from those study notes. All those things should, should be in accordance with what all of Scripture teaches. So let me wind down here in verses 11 through 13. So Jesus relates, he relates, this is the spirit of prayer. A shameless boldness in approaching the throne of God on the basis of what Jesus has done upon the cross, not of your own worthiness, but also because you love the Father who, has, who loves to hear your own requests, who wants to help you, who wants to provide for your needs and bless you spiritually. So he teaches us you need to ask, you need to do it with this particular boldness and shamelessness because you need to understand the nature of your Father. Look at verse 11. He uses this next um, illustration. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? It's kind of odd, but if you had bread, particularly bread that they would have had in that first century, it might resemble a smooth um, stone that you got from the edges of a river or a lake. Or if you ask for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? A serpent generally resembling the same shape or profile of a fish. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? 
If a scorpion's balled up, it may represent or look kind of like an egg. So all these normal needs of life, if you ask, is any normal father on earth going to give you something that actually brings harm to you? No. It's absurd. Verse 13, if you then being evil. So all of us here today are evil in comparison to God's holiness. It's not that you are evil. Without Christ, you are. In Christ, we're made righteous. But in comparison to his infinite holiness, we are all evil. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how many of you like to give good gifts to your children? Yes, I do. I'm 32 years old, and my mom still likes to give me gifts. And I will take them. I will take them. Not very many come from my dad, but mostly from my mom. So if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, oh, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we have to have a better understanding of the nature of our heavenly Father And when we do, it will affect the way in which we approach his throne. And what is the way in which we approach it? Not with arrogance or haughtiness, but with assurance, with confidence, with a shameless boldness. And he gladly welcomes that because of what Jesus has done, what his blood affords to us, and because of his very nature, which is, I am your father and I want to give you good gifts. I want you to ask me so that I can show up in your life. I want you to trust me. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to worship me. I want you to place all your faith and trust in me, even when you don't see what's around the corner. Because I love you and I have the best interest for your life. And, and more than your temporal needs... I care about your spiritual needs more than anything. And that's why it's indicated at the very end, he will always meet your needs when it comes to you saying, God, increase my love for you. Increase my patience. Increase my portion and the influence of the Holy Spirit in my life. He will always answer those spiritual requests. He may not answer your temporal requests. Lord, provide to me this house or provide to me this particular car. He may or may not answer us how we we would hope he would answer, how we think he would answer when it comes to temporal things. He is first first, uh, primarily concerned with your spiritual well-being. He will always provide those things which you need spiritually. And that's why he caps it off with how much more will will the Father give the Holy Spirit to his children? How much more? Now, now he's speaking, I know he's speaking pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection, pre-ascension, but in the context of a believer, a Christian believer, you and I, we have the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. Then we have the blessing of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Then we have the continued influence and power and, and, and enablement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And trying to understand what does he mean he's going to give the Holy Spirit, it can mean all of that. Everything the Holy Spirit affords into your life as God's agent, as as the third member of the Godhead that we looked at Sunday, every activity that the Holy Spirit has in your life, he will give it to you in a greater portion to lead and to guide and to direct you in your life if you will just simply ask. 
If you will simply trust him, love him, and not view it as ticking off hours on a clock or as a duty and and regulation. Because when you approach prayer that way, it becomes a drudgery. You, You begin to feel guilty when you don't do good enough. And you approach God on the basis of fear instead of boldness, shameless boldness. And so let us have a proper understanding of the God that we serve here today. Amen?